Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with the director of the new Changing of the Gods Astrology Documentary series. Uh, Kenny, welcome. Thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be with you, Chris. I love your program. Yeah, so this has been a long time in coming. I just did an episode with Richard Tarnas, who's part of the inspiration and the subject of your documentary. And so you've been working on this for several years now, but it's finally about to come out in late February of 2022, right? It is indeed. It's been a long and winding road, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead, just I want to make sure my audience and to set the context for this interview, I'm going to play the short two to three minute trailer right now uh, so everyone can get a sense for what we're talking about before they've seen the the movie or the series, and then we'll we'll start talking about that about it. Does that sound good to you? Sounds great. Okay. Here we go. Is this just some sort of disturbance in the force? These are truly uncharted times. There are periods in history when human energies, both constructive and destructive, seem to come to a boil. I don't know if you can remember the last time we have seen a world this much in chaos. If you didn't know better, you'd think something larger was at work. Something is happening here, and you don't know what it is. That something is happening again. Is there a correlation between human history and the movement of the planets? Tracing back in history the many times that Uranus and Pluto came into conjunction or opposition or the square, it would coincide with historical periods that have a quality that perfectly reflects the archetypal quality astrologers connect to those particular planets. There appears to be a close correspondence in history with sudden large-scale shifts in human consciousness and collective behavior. I can see the similarities between Black Lives Matter and the Black Power Movement. One possibility for understanding astrology was that it was synchronicity working on a grand cosmic scale. There is one unitive process of consciousness that is manifesting on multiple scales of time and space simultaneously everywhere. And astrology is the study of those correlations. The current scientific understanding of consciousness is just barely beginning. There are correlations between the microcosm of human consciousness and the macrocosm of the solar system and beyond. We are constantly co-creating together. We are the conscious expression of the universe being conscious of itself. Our future deeply depends on what level of consciousness and engagement we bring to this historical moment to bring forth the best possible results. Young folks who marched from Selma to Stonewall didn't just do it for themselves, they did it for other people. A fundamental changing of the gods seems to be at work right now. Massive numbers of people coming together to actually decide what their future is going to be. This is a moment in history that seems to happen from time to time in history. This is by far the biggest one yet. All right, so that's the trailer. Um, so this is pretty exciting. So um, basically, the context of this series is that it focuses on um, mundane astrology and especially outer planet alignments, particularly 
the alignments of Uranus and Pluto, such as the squares, the conjunctions, and the oppositions. And it's partially based on the work of Richard Tarnas in his 2006 book, Cosmos and Psyche, right? That's correct, yeah. Okay. So um, I know, you know, the Uranus Pluto square that was happening, if you use Tarnas's orbs of, of 10 degrees for squares, was operative between 2007 and 2020. And it was really exact around the middle part of the last decade. And that was that was part of what led you to want to do this project at that time, right? Well, um, you know, I read the book in August of 2012. Um, and uh, I, I'd been, um, I, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit and tell you some of my personal background. Sure. Uh, but I, I grew up in New York City. And um, after college, um, I fled the East Coast. I'd been a student activist and, you know, everything sort of crashed and burned in the early 70s, pretty depressing time. Do you share your birth data? April 20th, 1949, in Brooklyn, New York at 2.58 a.m. And so I anyway, I, I fled to the West Coast and ended up in San Francisco for a period and became friends with uh, a mother and daughter who were Russian, uh, Russian extraction. And the woman, uh, the mother, Marla, looked like something off a tarot card. She was a deep Russian mystic and um, wonderful, wonderful person. And woman had kind of x-ray eyes and always dressed in red and black, you know. And anyway, um, after we got to know each other, she started, she offered to gift me with an astrology reading. And I thought, oh my God, great, welcome to California. <laughs> and I resisted for a while, but out of politeness and friendship, eventually I relented. And I went and had this reading um, that absolutely blew my mind. I mean, I could not imagine how anyone could know that much about my inner life and my psyche. And I learned so much about myself, things that actually have served me for the rest of my life. What year was this? This was 1970, uh, end of 73. Okay. And you have early Pisces rising? Yes. Okay. I'm going to share your chart on the screen really quickly. So there, there you go. So for those listening to the audio version, so you have early Pisces rising. Uh, you have uh, Moon-Jupiter conjunction in Aquarius with Jupiter at zero and the Moon at two. Then Mars in Aries along with the Sun in the North Node in late Aries. Venus and Mercury conjunct in early Taurus. Uranus at 27 Gemini, Pluto at 14 Leo, and Saturn at 29 Leo with Neptune at 13 uh, Libra. So that's a nice chart. So you had this reading and it was actually really persuasive and and made you think that there might be something to this in the early 70s? Yeah, very much so. And then um, within the year, I moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I continued to live. And um, it was a you know it was a tiny town at that time, and um, there was it was primarily a Hispanic town, and of course there's a strong native presence, and and then there was the and the Anglo's, and then there was the fourth wave of the hippies that came in, and I came in around that time and um, fell in synchronously with a group of astrologers who it turned out practice the type of astrology that Rick does, which is primarily focused on planetary aspects and Abertine and you know the Uranian astrology. And um, I spent several years just educating myself and getting to learn from these very, very brilliant astrologers. And you know, for me, I was doing other things in terms of my life and my work, but it was kind of an avocation and just an interest and a personal hobby. And then I moved on to do other types of work, but I always, you know, continued as my own, you know, personal little practice of astrology. I'm in no way an astrologer, and you know, spent most of my time doing other things, but. Um, 
I asked a friend um, around 2012, uh, who's an astrologer, a very close friend of mine, if there were any books about astrology that was not person-centered but about societal astrology, and he referred me to Cosmos and Psyche. And as I said, I read it in the summer of 2012, and I almost didn't get up for four days. I mean, it, it just blew my mind completely. And I had an almost sort of holographic 3D vision of the film um, focused on the Uranus-Pluto, which was the central picture of the time that we were in, of course, at that moment. And I'd been, I'd founded, um, co-founded Bioneers in 1990, the nonprofit group with, with my wife, Nina Simons, which is really about practical and visionary solutions for restoring people and planet with a very strong progressive political, you know, outlook to it as well. Yeah, could you tell me a little bit more about that? Just because that's such such an important backdrop for um, for the series. Actually, your work with pioneers that it might be good to to like dwell on that for for a minute or two. Sure. Um, well, I I grew up in New York City. And my father taught at Columbia. He's a professor of history, and so I would grew up around. You know, I came of age during the '60s, during the height of all the protest movements and social movements, and became involved in the civil rights movement when I was about 15 and then the anti-war movement and student movements and so forth. And I remained political. And then when I moved to New Mexico, um, you know, to anyone who was paying attention at that time, it was very clear that we were on a collision course with the natural world and with each other. And rather than just sort of sitting there shivering, fearful in the dark, worrying about the doom machine coming our way, what I wanted to know is, are there any real solutions? And I began to learn as much as I could and read and meet people. And one by one by one, I began to meet all these remarkable people who had come up with genuine solutions to, you know, systemic solutions to environmental and social crises. And um, I came to call them bioneers. The word in Greek, bios, means life, you know, the study of life itself. And there were two characteristics um, to these solutions. One was that they were systemic. It was a solve the whole problem approach, not kind of single issue focused. And the other was that they had all looked to nature as mentor, model, and metric for actual solutions. The basic question, which sounds idiot simple, but is disarmingly complex, is um, how would nature do it? And of course, now that's an entire field called biomimicry, which is covered in the film in various places. And so I just did this as something I was interested in, and I'd begun to, you know, I was writing and doing some journalism and this and that. And um, in the mid '80s, I, I was making a feature documentary film, the first film that I'd done called Hoxie: How Healing Becomes a Crime, which uh, it looks at the world of unconventional cancer therapies um, and the suppression and repression of of those. They've really mostly never been studied, and it was particularly focused on one treatment called the Hoxie treatment, which is an herbal formula um, that has since been, to some degree, validated, actually. But it's a botanical formula, and I sort of went through the rabbit hole into the world of botanical medicine. And in the course of that, I met uh, the co-author of The Secret Life of Plants, Christopher Bird, um, and became good friends with him. And of course, Chris was deep into plant intelligence at that point, and you know, plants are sentient. It was very, you know, at the time, very, very radical thoughts. Now, of course, that's no scientist would dispute the intelligence in nature, but. Um, but anyway, Chris called me up and asked if I'd go make a film at an Indian Pueblo near Santa Fe, and I didn't really know what I was getting into. But it was there that I met Gabriel Howarth, who's a master organic farmer and seed collector, 
who had traveled all over the Americas collecting traditional heirloom and native seeds, and he'd lived with native peoples to apprentice with them. Um, and what he came to understand as they trusted him was that they would give him their most precious of gifts, which is the gift of seeds, because through the seeds speak the voices of the ancestors, and each time you plant a seed, you become an ancestor for generations to come. And so we were filming, and one day we filmed with this one uh, native man from um, from San Juan Pueblo who was holding these just luminous uh, red corn seeds in his hands, and he began weeping as he was speaking. And Gabriel at the Pueblo had simply put out the word. Um, they'd asked him to come and plant his diversity gardens there. And so he had gone around the Pueblo just asking people, do you have any old seeds? And this fellow, uh, James Chancellor, had found these red corn seeds in a little pot buried in the adobe wall of, of his home. And it turned out it was the sacred red corn of San Juan Pueblo, which had not been planted in 40 years. And so this was a real kind of catalytic moment. Um, and long story short, Gabriel and I went on to found a company called Seeds of Change in 1989 that was a backyard biodiversity company and the first national organic seed company to bring diversity back into the food web, the agricultural diversity. And then a year later, um, my wife and I, Nina Simon, started um, Bioneers, which was very much along those same lines of looking at nature-based solutions as well as social you know, solutions to the major crises that we're facing. And it began as an annual conference, which continues today and then moved into many other areas of activity and different projects. And we do a ton of media. And so when I was reading Cosmos and Psyche, you know, I really, part of when you look at the Uranus-Pluto picture, it's about revolution, paradigm shifts. Um, and that's exactly what the work of Bioneers is about. And we're sort of a network of networks um, of many of the sort of people at the forefront of these different, very diverse social movements. Um, and I realized that these were the revolutions of our time and that in looking back casting into history, in effect, going back to the French Revolution and looking at these cycles of revolution and transformation during UP periods, we would land in the fierce urgency of now. And what is the revolution today? What is the transformation? And so it was kind of a marriage of Bioneers and Cosmos and Psyche in that way. Okay, brilliant. So it partially helped you once you discover it, discovered it and saw that we were in the midst of the Uranus-Pluto square of the 2010s and how that related back to the 1960s at the Uranus-Pluto conjunction. And then further back in that cycle, it helped you to, to contextualize some of the work that you had been doing up to that point and, and some of the changes that you were seeing in the world today. Well, exactly. And, you know, I'd been wanting to make a film for a number of years. I'd done, as I said, this Hoxie feature doc in the 80s. And I'd been poking around and looking at different possibilities. And I've been friends with um, Louis Schwartzberg since the mid 90s. Um, and Louis's been at Bioneers many times. And of course, Louis does absolutely brilliant nature based films, the most recent being Fantastic Fungi, which I was an ex executive producer on. And anyway, we were kind of poking around and wondering. And um, and I just didn't, nothing quite clicked for me. There were some really good ideas, but I, I wanted to do something that was transformative and I hadn't found it yet. And with Cosmos and Psyche, it goes to the much deeper level. You know, with Bioneers for many years, we'd been, since the beginning, actually, 1990, we'd been exploring this idea of intelligence in nature. And what appealed to me about Cosmos and Psyche is it takes it up one octave saying, not only is nature intelligent, 
but it, uh, it is our nature and the cosmos actually saturated with consciousness, with sentience. And that was really interesting. <laughs> and then at the same time, it would be a fascinating kind of experiment. You know, if these cycles are archetypally predictable, you know, would the archetypes of the Uranus Pluto period, uh, you know, could we hold a mirror up to the zeitgeist and verify, you know, would this indeed be this period of revolutionary transformation? And of course, there was no knowing concretely what would happen, but archetypally, would it be predictable? And sure enough, <laughs> you've seen the film, you know. <laughs> yeah. And and I also seen and lived through the decade that we just experienced. And and that was one of the things though that was kind of interesting about this project is you started it and you launched it with a Kickstarter to fund it at least, or at least it was funded through a Kickstarter in 2015. But then we were still, you know, only part of the way through that. So there was still a lot of that. Uranus Pluto square to go, and a lot of events that took place over the subsequent six years. Um, so I feel you maybe ran into a little bit of an issue where some of the things that you were documenting at the time were still happening and still playing out in the midst of like trying to make this film capturing part of this era. Yeah, no, you're right on point. And you know, one thing that anybody who knows anything about Uranus Pluto knows is expect the unexpected, right? <laughs> you have no idea what's going to happen. And um and so for one thing it began originally to, as a 2-hour feature documentary and a, 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 we started you know I actually started raising the money in 2013, but it took a couple of years to put together the the initial seed funding and then the um you know the the team and the concept and you know put all, everything in place legally we started production in 2015 and i thought originally it was going to be a 2 hour feature documentary but a couple of years into it I, I had a real crisis and i realized number 1 there's no way that we can do justice to rick's work and shoehorn this story into 2 hours partly because there's so many big ideas, you know, people just get their hair blown back and there's no way that you could absorb that in a couple of hours. You would just, I'd lose people very quickly. And we were doing little test screenings of what we'd shot and started to edit and that we saw that quite visibly. And then the other thing um, was that we, we you just needed much more time and space to unfold it. And at that time, so I sat down and I kind of um, mapped out the, the topics and the structure and I realized that it was perfectly fitted to an episodic series. And, you know, as I say, when I started this in 2013, Netflix was a mail order DVD company that everybody thought was about to go bankrupt. <laughs> so by 2016, 2017, you know, there was Netflix, Amazon was coming on the scene, et cetera. And so the, it would work to do an episodic series. And so, of course, that changed everything. And we were originally hoping to finish and release it in 2018. And uh, that just, you know, um, was not going to happen. And so what ended up happening was that we tracked the entire transit through 2020 up to, you know, January of uh, January 6th, the famous January 6th. That was kind of our cutoff point. Um, and it was actually necessary in retrospect to follow the transit to its conclusion or to its tapering off at that point. And, you know, it, I'm not particularly mystically inclined but um i had this feeling when the whole project started that um it was almost as if the cosmos picked me up by the scruff of the neck and said you're working for me now you're doing this and i'm going to help you <laughs> and so i felt like you know i surrendered at that point to saying okay i'm just going to go with the flow and it's going to be a wild ride and who knows how this is going to go um 
And that's what ended up happening following the transit right to the to the end. Brilliant. All right. Yeah. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense in terms of of the rise of Netflix over the past decade and and how just watching a series of something or, or people releasing a series of either documentaries or television shows like Squid Game, for example, last fall that have become so popular in watching something or binge watching something is like a 10-part series. So it makes sense that transformation. I did want to mention the Kickstarter really quickly because I think that was notable in the astrological community because even though Kickstarter was launched in 2009, it really seems like it became popular in the early to mid-2010s. And um, yours was one of the first really successful major Kickstarter projects that to fund an astrologically-based project. I know there were other astrologers like Adam Ellenboss or Achuta Bhava Das who launched his Kickstarter in 2014, but I think yours was one of the first really big ones where um, you had 555 backers that ended up successfully funding a goal of $100,000 in order to fund the what was at the time a, just a two-hour documentary project, and that happened in late 2015, right? Yes, exactly. And I'd already raised you know money before that, and I you know when you do the types of projects I've been doing, um, be it independent film or bioneers or seeds of change, you have to learn to be a fundraiser. So that goes with the territory. But the Kickstarter campaign also generated other funding and was really seminal, you know, to the success of, of getting it, you know, getting the money. <laughs> so yeah, was that challenging at the point where it started expanding into a larger project? Because I'm sure even. Like a hundred thousand dollars for a two-hour project, you know, you'd have to stretch that away as over the course of of making it over three or four years. But did you run into issues with that once it became a larger, longer-term project that took like six years instead of three? Well, let me put it this way: the budget is around three and a half million. Okay, that's a yeah, that gives us some idea. We really wanted to, to do justice to the material and make a really professional film and. The other thing that I would add here too, because as I say, there's just been a sense of synchronicity from day one with this that it was meant to be, and I felt there was one way or the other there was going to be support out there for it. And um, or very early on, um, I needed a researcher, and um, I had gotten to know Rick's daughter uh, Becca Tarnas, who herself is a very prominent and you know respected astrologer these days. And so Becca originally was going to help me with some of the research. And then her life was complex and it wasn't turned out not to be the right thing for her. And she said, Well, I have this friend who I think could help you. His name is Max DeArman. And it was then that I met Max. And Max, of course, went on to become the producer with me, the, the other producer of the film. Max is an absolute genius. Um, he and my, one of my other key, um, key team, uh, Theo Badashi, who is our Lead, ed lead editor as well as a brilliant graphics and film artist, really. His artistry is exceptional. Um, it, Max pulled Theo in as our editor, and they both moved to Santa Fe, and we've been a super tight team you know, since that time. And this literally would not have happened without the two of them. And and you know, as a producer, Max is the most resourceful person I think I may have ever worked with other than my wife. Um, and just, you know, there's so many things that he has done that, I mean, I just can't even begin to say. So there's just been, and then we've had um, Nina Simons, my wife, has been a creative consultant, and Lori Benenson, who's also one of our um, funders in it, um, 
have been creative consultants. You know, there, there's film is a collaborative medium. That's part of what I love about it. And at the end of the day, you do need a director. You need somebody who's going to make a final decision. But over largely, it's a collaborative process. And so, so many fingerprints are all over this. And of course, Rick himself has given us endless input and helped make sure the narrations and are correct and accurate and precise and um, added some of his ideas. So, you know, there's been an enormous team effort behind the whole project. Louis Schwartzberg obviously has played a major role in it. And, um, you know, it's a lot of people. It's not just me at all. <laughs> yeah. And, and the production value, that was the main thing I was struck by is the production value is just extremely high in just about every aspect of it, including not just the cinematography and the audio, but also the animations and just the graphical element that you have running throughout the entire film is top notch and is higher than any other sort of attempt to portray astrology, I think, than I've ever seen. Well, you know, I I went to be really honest with you, Chris, when I first read the book and was thinking about, you know, had this vision of the film, I really had a long dark night of the soul because I've spent decades taking pretty obscure arcane topics and trying that are often quite controversial or to some extent taboo. I mean, the Hoxie film was about an herbal treatment for cancer. You know, good luck with that. And that was in the 80s. I mean, I had doctors go apoplectic and had their veins bulging in their neck yelling at me, you're killing people by giving them false hope and putting out this information. And, you know, so, and of course, the film ended up being highly acclaimed and it turned out the Hoxie therapy does have merit. But in any case, you know, Bioneers was totally out of the box in 1990, talking about the kinds of things that we were talking about at that time and nature based solutions or biomimicry or indigenous knowledge. And wisdom, et cetera. So, you know, I've spent a lot of years trying to build credibility for some pretty far out arenas. And I was concerned that, you know, an, an astrology, you know, until pretty recently has been kind of the gold standard of magical thinking and new age flakiness. And it's like, oh my God. And I wasn't worried just about my own reputation, but about bioneers. And I don't want, you know, and, and that stuff's out there. I mean, there will be some harm from it and all that. But I was feeling, hey, you know, it's the end of the world as we know it here, guys. <laughs> this is a time to be courageous and really speak your truth, you know. And I believe that the message in the film and the, the worldview, you know, in the film is is transformational and is critically important right now. We've got to kind of, you know, to use a baseball metaphor, swing for the fences. <laughs> so I, I decided to take that risk, even though I knew it would be, you know, some reputational harm or, you know, blowback. Right. Um, and I, I meant to ask, and I should have mentioned this earlier, but the film is set to, or the series is set to premiere on February twenty second, twenty twenty two, right? Yes. And why did you choose that date, or was it for like numerolo numerological or astrological reasons, or what was the sort of motivation behind that? Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, one thing, my view of astrology, and it's partly just my personal orientation, is that it's great to have this kind of compass, you know, and calendrical, you know, tool that you can use. Um, but I, I I like to leave things up to the mystery at the end of the day with all humility is like, it's so complex, nobody knows anything. You know, I think that kind, you can overreach in terms of being too elective, <laughs> so to speak. Um, so originally, we were going to release it on September 27th in 2021. And then for a variety of reasons, including COVID, that was not possible, so we had to reschedule. So there were some practical considerations, such as 
after the new year, how long before people are kind of up and running again and how long of a pre-launch is needed and just logistics and stuff like that. And so I was aware, of course, which I think is where you're heading, of the um, Pluto return of the US birth chart, um, but I did not know it was exactly February 22nd. Okay, that was my that was my question is because already already people have asked if you did that intentionally of the there's going to be three exact hits of the Pluto return of the U.S. to the U.S. Sibley chart and just if and that ha- the first one happens to be on February 22nd. So I was just curious. I didn't know it was exactly that day. I knew it was in that zone, and different people have named different dates. So I'm not skilled enough to be able to decide which one is correct. You know. Sure. Right. Uh, well, that's pretty fun. That, that's really interesting, and I like when stuff like that happens. So, what's the? I should have asked. What's the release schedule? Is it all going to come out on February twenty second? Um, how can people watch it, or or what's the sort of sequence of events going to be? Yeah. Um, so people could go to the um, to the link for changing of the God series dot com and um, get all the information. And the registration opens on February 7th, which is very soon. And what we're doing is it's an entirely free screening over about a two-week period. So you don't have to buy anything. All you have to do is register. And then each day for nine days, um, for 24 hours, each episode will air. So on February 7th, I forget what time, I think uh, nine in the evening or something, but episode one will play for 24 hours, and then episode two and then after episode nine of the 10 episodes, there's a marathon weekend where everything will play all at once. So you can see the whole thing or whatever you missed. And then there will be the special bonus 10th episode, which is the climax to the whole series. Um, and then it ends, it, it's a, I forget the exact day, but it ends after that. And then there's a special for the people who are, who buy the, I think the gold set, whatever it's called. Um, there's a special webinar that Rick, and Louis Schwartzberg and I and, and Louisa Tisch are going to do um, that people will be able to, to talk about the film and, and learn more. Um, and of course, we hope people will buy the series and love it. But um, but in any case, it is a free screening. And it's with a company called Jeff Hayes Productions, who specialize in this. And we've had a really wonderful experience working with them. Very professional. And they, they their model is really excellent. You know, we decided not to go with one of the major platforms at the outset for several reasons but one of the primary reasons is it, this is not this is a passion project obviously and we really want it to be seen and we felt that we're pretty well connected to many of the audiences that we would you know that we would like to see this and can reach them pretty directly through our own channels and through the many networks of bioneers and Rick's networks many other people um, and so we really wanted it to be seen and to stay independent and retain all the rights to it for now. Um, once you sell it to one of the majors, it goes down the rabbit hole. You have no further control and you don't really know if they're going to market it or, you know, we, we have too much into this and we feel it's too important to just take that kind of a risk. So we decided to take a different risk. <laughs> so not having it on the other major platforms like like Netflix or Amazon or something right now allows you to be able to do this premiere free so that everybody can watch it and it can have the widest sort of audience or distribution at least initially. That's correct. And you know this initial screening, this initial limited launch is only a 2 week period, so people if you do want to see it, you got to actually tune in during that time. 
and then um, we may do the same thing again in several months. Um, we, you know, we've left our plans, you know, fluid for the moment, it, and we're open, of course, to you know having it go to one of the major platforms down the line. But we really wanted to control the launch and control the initial outreach because we felt we could reach people more directly. Okay, brilliant. That makes sense. So. Really, February seventh is when everything begins, and then what? That's when the series sort of initial screening begins, and then what happens? February twenty second is the screening. Uh, the the pre launch you can register as of February seventh at changingofthegodseries dot com, and you can opt in right now. You can go there this minute today, whatever, and um, get get the, the, the they'll then register you on February seventh. And just to clarify, because there's two websites, so there's changingofthegods.com, which is Always been your main website and carries the trailer currently, but you'd like people to go to changingofthegodseries.com in order to register. Yeah, either one will get you there. Cool. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the actual series itself and, and some of the things that you covered. So it's broken up into 10 episodes, and each episode ranges from what, about 30 minutes to an hour each? 30 to 40, or 30, the longest one is 45, but most of them are 30 to 40. Okay. And um, you allowed me to sort of get a sneak peek of the series starting in November, and I watched it through in the order that you had it at that point, but I think you may have reconfigured uh, certain episodes since then, or has it changed a little bit? Uh, no, the order uh, would be the same, um, but now we have a final cut, and so it's you know, radically polished from what you saw, but uh, otherwise the sequence has stayed the same. You know, as I said, um, I had this sort of crisis at one point when I realized it wasn't going to be shoehorned into a two-hour film, and sat down and kind of looked at the taxonomy, and I realized um, that it would fit perfectly in an episodic format. The opening episode is really the setup and the premise. It introduces the idea of Rick of Rick's work of world transits of Uranus Pluto, world transits, and of the archetypes and what you know. Rick characterizes the essence of Uranus Pluto transits as being the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And so we set up the sort of theme of the whole series, and then raise the question: Would this transit from two thousand seven through twenty twenty indeed reflect this archetype of revolutionary transformation? Would it uh, manifest as progressive um, liberation movements or right-wing fascist populist movements? <laughs> and of course, we all know how that has been going. Um, and then uh, the last episode is the payoff because we raise, you know, we raise several questions at the beginning. Do we, you know, that are really cosmological, as you well know, Chris, do we live in a random, meaningless universe, or is there order in the chaos? Is there a correlation between human history and the movements of the planets? And it, is it possible that not only is nature intelligent, but that nature and the cosmos are conscious, you know, have sentience? And so the last episode cycles all the way back to those questions from the beginning and looks into, you know, if this is true, how could this be? And I would emphasize, in a sense, it's a mystery story or a detective story, because they don't call it the great mystery for nothing, right? <laughs> With all humility, we know so little, you know, who knows? You know, we can speculate and we can have hypotheses and we can have intuition and, and um, but, you know, anyway, we, we go into those questions and we have kind of a reflection in the last episode from some of our interview subjects about the state of the world right now and what it all means. 
And then the eight intervening episodes, you know, part of what Rick lays out in the book is that these transits will predictably manifest in specific arenas of human activity. Um, so, for example, uh, episodes two and three go into political revolutions, both left and right, um, and and that is and that includes uh, just general breakdown of structures, you know, uh, breakthroughs, etc. And then um, the next episode goes into women's rights movements, which is another arena where these transits will predictably manifest. Uh, then there's an episode on black liberation and civil rights movements, which is another sphere of, of human activity. Uh, the following episode goes into um, From Othering to Belonging, which is about the Plutonic shadow side, which includes scapegoating, racism, you know, xenophobia, um, that whole kind of gestalt of um, the underworld of the human psyche. Uh, and then the, the last sequence of uh, goes into technological revolutions, which also goes into the renewables revolution, of course, that's happening contemporarily, as well as the biomimicry revolution, which is the, on the forefront of what's really coming next. And then the, we go into scientific paradigm shifts, which also contains – it was a wonderful, wonderful vehicle to go into Rick's work from his other book, The Passion of the Western Mind which really looks at um, the birth of the modern mind and um, you know the worldview that has brought us to where we are today, the materialist, reductionist worldview, and the emerging ecological paradigm that, that is you know, now superseding that. And it's a beautiful, beautiful distillation of Rick's absolutely brilliant work in that arena of looking at these scientific paradigm shifts. There's a wonderful section in that episode about intelligence in nature that looks at plant intelligence, animal intelligence, and I won't give away the story, but it's slime molds, <laughs> a single-celled organism that's basically a, a ball of mucus that apparently is highly intelligent. So um, I think people will get get a kick out of all that. So that's that's how it's structured. Yeah, I um, in terms of the episodes that really stood out as some of my favorites, and looking back at the series, I really liked. Episode uh, episodes four and five on the women's rights movement and black liberation movements, um, as well as episode six or seven on liberating the instincts, and uh, and I liked bits of or large parts of episode eight on technological revolutions, um, because part of what you did and part of what people need to understand going into this series is, for example, in episodes four and five on the women's rights movements and black liberation movements, you spend a lot of time. Going back and showing historically what happened during different periods in the past when the Uranus Pluto alignments took place, and like what happened in the 1960s in terms of the women's rights movements or black liberation movements, but also taking it back through previous squares and oppositions and conjunctions of Uranus and Pluto, and actually showing in history how the same themes kept coming up over and over again. And Snowballing and and eventually leading to a sort of crescendo where major changes would take place in society at those times, but they were always tied into earlier an earlier sequence of events that happened to coincide with or correlate with those outer planetary alignments. And in doing so, it not only demonstrates the principle of astrology is actually at, at work somehow or for some reason in world events, but as an astrologer, I. Found it to be really compelling in terms of giving me a deeper insight into some of the meanings of the planets and some of the archetypal dynamics underlying Pluto and Uranus and some of the other planets. 
Yeah, gosh, I forgot to mention Liberating the Instinct, Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, the other episode. Sorry about that. But um, that deals with sexual revolutions as well as the, what Rick calls the liberation of consciousness, which we look at through um, uh, parallels of the 60s and now with um, the use of cannabis and psychedelics. And that episode's a lot of fun, actually. Very, very interesting. But yeah, no, you're spot on. And um, this is down another rabbit hole because um, when I had the original vision for the film, you know, it was clear we would go back to the French Revolution, which is really where, you know, mo mostly what Rick dwells on in the book. And then, you know, backcast from the present to the French Revolution and then look at the mid 19th century, the turn of the 20th century, uh, the 60s, of course, and then the 2007 to 2020 period. And so what that would involve is an enormous amount of research on archival images, footage, art, um, paintings. I mean, obviously there were no photographs during the French Revolution and, you know, no electronic media and so forth. So it's been a monster project in terms of the archival research. Um, we have actually logged over 80,000 images, films, and different clips that we have looked at. And we actually looked at probably double that. I mean, it's absolutely overwhelming. And then we've worked with a team of lawyers for five years now because either you have to license these things, which you have to pay for, and which means also finding the source, which can often be extremely difficult, or you have to legitimately claim fair use, which is a whole legal discussion we don't need to get into. But we have over 5,700 items that had to be cleared by our lawyers. <laughs> this has literally never been done before. And, you know, would we do these projects if we knew we were getting into? I don't know. <laughs> it's an open question. It's hard to say. And Max yeah. has been amazing. And the two of us, along with our legal team, have done all that legal and licensing work. And our heads are exploding. Believe me, I would never, ever, ever do something like that again. But um, we really put tremendous care. And you know, it had to be very accurate. It had to be within these time periods and, you know, and oftentimes it was extremely difficult to locate the types of things we were looking for, but it was also absolutely fascinating because I, I mean, I learned an incredible amount over the course of this. And also we found so many sources of just amazing footage that were unbelievably obscure or weird stuff. And what you're saying is it's this resonance, this echo that happens across these cycles where it's almost like somebody wrote the script archetypally with often the same language being used. And at the same time, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. But as Rick also emphasizes, it doesn't just rhyme, it evolves. And so you see the actual evolution across the transits of kind of how we got to where we are now and what this transformational moment means today. Yeah, I, I was, as I was watching it, just shocked by the sheer amount of archival footage and amazing graphic imagery and, and historical images and other things you used so that when you're reading this, it's like you're you're getting a crash course in cosmos and psyche, but you're getting like an animated, illustrated, narrated uh, commentary of some of the highlights of some of those cycles all condensed down into you know much more much shorter uh, you know even episodes than anything I pull off yet that are so, information packed that you're kind of left, your head is kind of left reeling, even as an astrologer in, in terms of new, learning new things that I didn't even know about in the past. Yeah, no, I mean, as, you know, a lot of what interested me, as I say, was um, the Uranus-Pluto aspect of this because, and as Rick characterizes it, the arc of the moral universe. 
and to look back to beginning with the French Revolution, which was the catalytic revolution in the West of this movement for rights, for freedom, for justice, for liberation. And to look at that arc across these cycles, you know, bringing us to now. And so few people really know the history. Or, and, and so we tried to distill that history as best we could. Obviously, it's maddeningly incomplete in certain ways, but to give a real capsule history. And when you see the sort of trajectory over time, and it, it's incredibly moving to me, you know, when the, the uh, unbelievable courage, bravery, um, the suffering that people have been through. I mean, you mentioned the Black Liberation and Civil Rights episode and, you know, the incredible uh, power of soul behind that of what people have endured. Oh my God, the women's rights as well. I mean, and and it's very shocking. I mean, it, like in the women's rights episode, when you see even the footage of the 60s, which I lived through, I mean, I came out of that epoch, but how unbelievably backward it was compared to where we are today in terms of consciousness and what people were coming out of and coming out of the 50s. And then at the same time, you know, it's also the story of revolution and counter-revolution and the plutonic will to power and domination that will fight back every time, you know? And you mentioned, um, you know, the Pluto return in the US birth chart, but we're witnessing so much of that now with that, you know, this is the struggle of democracy versus plutocracy which was present from the very beginning of the American Revolution. Um, and it was actually the elites who won the American Revolution at that time. And we, the episodes go into that. It's a, I would say a very deep deconstruction of, you know, the democracy theme park. <laughs> you know, we're told we live in a democracy, but is that really true? You know, that, that's very questionable. Yeah, one of the themes that kept coming up over and over again and and that was I thought insightful as I was preparing to do the Pluto episode with Rick Tarnas last month was just the themes that kept coming up in almost every episode when it came to Pluto had to do with like power dynamics and what to ha what what happens when there is a a power disparity between two groups of people or two people in general and the tendency sometimes for that to be abused and and lead to like major issues in society but then at some of these these alignments there was this periodic push to readjust the power disparity and to fix things and i think that's what you're referring to as like the moral arc of of the universe in some way is like a, the the pushback to uh, fix things that are sort of like wrongs in society or in the world in general yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, the reason that I um chose the people who whom you saw in the film, the interview subjects who are largely from the Bioneers network, um, is that they are our contemporary revolutionaries and they're deeply thoughtful people. I mean, these are not, you know, it, it, I, I mean you can speak to that better, you know, you've as a viewer. I, I you know, obviously, you know what my opinion is, but you know, someone like John Powell, um, Who's a, a you know a law professor and a deep scholar of racial justice? He wrote an incredible book called Racing to Justice. But a lot of John's work is what he calls from othering to belonging, and it looks at that plutonic shadow side of the tendency towards scapegoating, xenophobia, racism, you know that whole gestalt, and how do we bring about a world where we recognize all of us as human beings with mutual respect in a world where everybody belongs, um, what he calls the circle of human concern. And that's the transformative moment that we're at right now. You know, um, similarly, Eve Ensler's work around ending violence against women, you know, um, 
that is so up right now. <laughs> um, it, it's another one of those transformational moments. But the the forces of darkness are fierce, and they are fighting back. And that this is the moment of truth right now. You know that we're really facing in the world. Are we going to? You know, Pluto is kind of transform or perish, right? <laughs> one way or the other. So that that's the existential crossroads we're at. Right. Uh, so each of these, the different people that you interviewed in the series, a lot of them are people that you've sort of carried over from some of your previous work with the Bioneers and some of the environmental and other activism sort of type areas of your life and uh, finding ways to integrate that into the the sort of narrative that you found in Cosmos and Psyche and, and that was present in the past decade at the time of the Uranus-Pluto square. Yeah, I mean, one good example, and um, there, there are two political revolutions episodes, and the second one is democracy versus plutocracy. And um, the people whom we interview in that, um, you know, we look, I mean, there's not much question that we're living in a plutocracy today. <laughs> it's, it, it's greater than even the Gilded Age and the age of the, the robber barons. Um, but what's also been going on on the ground, and particularly during this transit, is um, work to really deconstruct corporate power and to revoke corporate rights. And that's been happening from the ground up. Um, Tom Lindsay and Mari Margill, who work for the Center for Environmental and Democratic Rights, um, began in right in 2006. The very first communities in the country started in Pennsylvania. They were actually rural communities that are quite conservative. Um, they would actually be considered right wing. But they were besieged with factory farms and quarries. And basically, they discovered that the laws were written by the companies and set up in a way that you can't win. You know, communities can't really resist. And so they decided to just sidestep the law and start making their own ordinances and revoking corporate rights and writing community bills of rights and local constitutions. And this has become a national movement now in communities across the country. And one of the most interesting extensions, and this happened in Pittsburgh, um, the communities, part of the problem is that the constitution is basically a property rights constitution. So property rights will supersede any other rights, human rights, environmental rights. Um, and so this has given birth to a movement called rights for nature, where nature actually gains legal standing. And as people, we can stand as trustees on behalf of nature, be it an ecosystem or a critter or a river, whatever it may be. And this has become a major global movement now. Ecuador in 2008 was the first country in the world to pass a national constitution that recognizes rights for nature. And it's been upheld in court, quite literally, and it's now spread all over the world. So that's the kind of prescriptive, you know, really direct um, solution to some of the problems that we're facing right now. And Tom and Mari are some of the leading, you know, um, actors in that space. So it's very practical, a lot of it. Yeah, especially later in the series, it seems like very clear in terms of having a vision for what you you would like to see happen going forward in a, in a sort of future that you're hoping will be created and that people will, will be inspired to create as a result of watching the series. Well, I hope so. I mean, I hope as people learn more about that work, they'll you know come to the Bioneers website and that's where they'll find a lot of the deeper information. And we've been doing this for. 32 years now. So there's there's a huge media archive and an enormous community that you can become part of and get connected to um, of people doing this kind of work on the ground. And, you know, it's very interesting. Um, 
because sometimes it can feel, you know, it's pretty easy to, to despair and feel overwhelmed at how, over, you know, how overwhelming these forces of destruction are. And the fossil fuel industry is a good example, but it's a substantial amount of that is also propaganda and it's kind of mind capture and, you know, holding a mirror up to the zeitgeist of this Uranus-Pluto cycle, we have witnessed um, the displacement of the fossil fuel regime. It's over. You know, it's not gone yet, and it's still going to be a battle. I mean, they're going to keep struggling to squeeze every last dollar of profit out of this thing and delay the transition as long as they can. But we've seen the shift. It has happened. Electric cars are coming. I mean, it's over. You know, there's a whole other regime coming into place. And it was incredibly interesting to actually watch that live in real time during the transit. And, you know, by the next Uranus-Pluto transit, it's going to be a whole different ballgame. We will not have fossil fuels. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's profound on that level. And of course, that episode, the Technology Revolutions episode, looks at the forefront of biomimicry, which is innovation inspired by nature, looking to nature, which has done everything we want to do, but without, you know, mortgaging the future or destroying the planet. Um, and Jay Harmon, who's a very prominent biomimic, gives beautiful examples of the work that he does um, around spirals. It turns out that spirals are the archetypal form of nature. It, it's all about flow and movement. Um, and when you build technologies based around these spirals, it's, you know, it's transformational. And Jay gives some beautiful, beautiful examples of that and other forms of biomimicry. And you know, it's our hope certainly that um, we've been pushing biomimicry through Bioneers for many, many years now, for 30 years. <laughs> um, and it, it's about to completely break loose. And we certainly hope that, you know, people exposed to this new information will, you know, accelerate that process now. How did you feel seeing that segment? Was that something you were familiar with? No, that was actually new to me. It was really interesting, especially some of the stuff about spirals and it immediately being built into different parts of nature. And um, it, of course, immediately made me think of the spiral animation that you'd been showing all throughout the series of the planets spinning around the sun and in our solar system as it moves through space. Um, and there were some really interesting things like that. And I did see that the series kind of culminates with the more of the ecological focus uh, that seems to be the final point that you the point of the narrative that you wanted to end on, and I was wondering to what extent that sort of became more of the focus in some way rather than just the purely astrological focus, because the astrology portion seems to be it seems like you wanted to provide a broader overall philosophy at the end of the series. I hope I'm not giving a too much away by saying that, but it tries to situate the astrology within a broader philosophy that might explain the astrology in some way, but also explain a lot of other things in the world as well. Great question. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's it's incredibly interesting and ironic. First of all, it's not like we had a script in the, in the sense that we didn't know how the whole transit would play out or what we would find. We knew what areas to look in, you know, and so forth. But um, But ironically, so we're looking at you know, if if you accept, entertain the, the the proposition that these transits occur, and there there will be an archetypally predictable zeitgeist that corresponds to the archetypes astrologers associate with Uranus and Pluto. Well, that suggests that consciousness pervades nature and the entire cosmos. I mean, that's a pretty big paradigm shift. So we're part of something so much larger, literally unimaginable. It's beyond our comprehension. 
Yet, at the end of the day, it brings us right back to Earth, <laughs> to our little mundane terrestrial existence here. And um, the Scientific Revolutions episode goes into this whole um, paradigm clash between the, the modern mind, between the materialist reductionist paradigm and the ecological paradigm, which is about interconnectedness and kinship and mutuality and our ultimate total interdependence with each other. And so, given the moment that we're out in the world, it's clearly this modern mind that has brought us to this precipice, both ecologically and spiritually. And so, the ecological paradigm is what is now emergent very clearly. And unless we resolve that, um, you know, we're not, you know, I mean, outer space doesn't mean much. You know, at the end of the day, we live on this beautiful little blue marble that is so precious and so unique and. There, there are not going to be seven billion people finding a space colony somewhere. Not that many of us would want to go there either, you know. So, I think going out into the heavens brings us right back to Earth. Yeah, that was uh, at the end of the series. In terms of where you left it, was interesting in terms of um, culminating with astrology being almost like a an epiphenomenon or a side effect of the broader point of the notion that there's consciousness in the cosmos and that um, nature has a sort of consciousness in the same way or in addition to humans having that rather than viewing it as a sort of dead, inert thing that we happen to find ourselves in. And it seemed like that was the point that you you really wanted to focus on primarily by the end of it, that the astrology was a building block up to. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And you know, it, um, most of the interviews that you see in the film were shot in 2015 and 2016. And of course, we didn't know that this would take so long <laughs> to finish. But thank goodness, um, the you know the material. It, it was interesting to me because that you wouldn't know that those were six, seven years old. Those interviews, five, six, seven years old, they seemed so of this moment. And I think that speaks to the quality of the people because they really do have a long view and a very profound one of what the core issues are, which really don't change in that sense, you know? And so I think we do take a, a very long view in that way. And, you know, it, this is, we're all in it for the long haul here. And that's what was so beautiful about going back to the French Revolution, because you really get this sense of of the arc of you know, the moral universe at that level. This is a long-term struggle and a long-term, you know, it, it's ultimately about consciousness and the mystery of consciousness itself, um, which, as the, the film shows, you know, comp the, the science of consciousness is in its infancy. We really don't know anything to speak of. Right. Yeah, and, and that's such a huge part of what astrology is as a sort of study of consciousness in, in some ways. But um, so, so one of the things I, I know I noted I wrote down as I was watching, especially towards the end, was just that the series is so massive and sweeping that the amount of stuff that you cover just ends up being staggering. And it's kind of like reading ten thick cosmos and psyche-sized books. Uh, you know, by the by the time you get to the end of it, and, and one of the things that I thought was interesting that in some ways this series ends up acting like an addendum to cosmos and psyche because. It covers the period that immediately follows the publication of the book in 2006, because you end up focusing on basically 2007 through 2020 or early 2021. So it ends up actually documenting the themes that arose under the square that happened immediately after the book's publication, 
um, using the research from Cosmos and Psyche as its historical foundation and basis to establish the patterns and the correlations to look for in the present um, through Tarnas having documented the ones that happened in the past. And then you do a pretty good job then of showing how those themes have manifested themselves um, in, in recent times. Yeah, no, it made for a very dramatic um, you know, kind of experiment because the book was published, as you say, in 2006, mm -hmm. just before the UP kicked in. And so would would this archetypally predictive hypothesis hold water? You know, that would be the question. And we held the mirror up to the zeitgeist to see how that would turn out. And also, you know, um, Cosmos and Psyche is a work of deep scholarship, and it's, I don't know, 450, 500 pages long. Um, it, it's very intellectual, uh, deeply researched, you know, um, and it, it, the limitation of that is that many people will not read it. And, you know, part of my impetus was I just felt like, my God, what Rick is doing here is so important, and many more people need to know about it. And a film could perhaps, you know, distill it into a simpler form um, and bring it to many more, more audiences. And I think certainly for Rick, too, that was, you know, appealing of something. He really wanted it to reach more people. And so that was our hope with the series, that it would um, take the core ideas and then build out, build it out around the contemporary framework, as well as a visual representation of much of the scholarship that's in the book, um, you know, and be able to bring that to life as well. And I would also say I, we had one very good piece of good fortune, which was that um, I, I've known I'd known the late Tom Hayden, the longtime you know lifelong activist, California senator, and all that. Um, and Tom wrote a book um, called The Long Sixties. And Tom was a remarkable writer and a scholar, actually, himself, researcher. And there's a 40 or 50 page addendum that is an actual chronology of the 60s year by year, right up to 1971 or two, that lists all the major events that happened in each year. And that was an absolutely invaluable resource for us. I, I don't know how, you know, it was, it was, it gave us so much to work from in terms of the research to know this march happened or this protest or this movement or this assassination or whatever it was. And um, so we used that also as one of our roadmaps. There were quite a few, but that that was a core roadmap as well. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it ends up being like a sort of really enjoyable history class and in, in learning things, even if you've done some research into previous periods, but you get a lot condensed down into a very short span of time. Um, one of the questions I had is I, I'm sure one of the criticisms might be at some point is how much focusing too much on one cycle of just like the Uranus Pluto square in recent times ended up causing you to neglect other planetary cycles that might be relevant or might be contributing factors like the Saturn Pluto conjunction of, of early 2020, for example. Although I did, I was happy to see that you. Squeeze that in um, later in one of the later episodes, in like episode nine or ten, a brief mention based on an interview that Tarnas actually did in 2015, where he again stated very clearly like some of the archetypal themes he expected to come up. But um, yeah, so so I was curious just to hear what your thought was in terms of that as a possible criticism, um, despite otherwise the film doing a really good job of showing how different periods in the past really are tied together with the present. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And um, as I said, it's maddeningly incomplete on one level because of the complexity 
And you're an astrologer, a very accomplished one, probably many of your viewers and, and your readers are as well, but most people are not. And so we were dealing with having to satisfy people such as yourself who are highly knowledgeable and then people who are essentially going to be very new to this and it's it's mm -hmm. all new to them and to find some kind of a ground where it would be comprehensible <laughs> and accessible and um so you know in episode three we do bring in saturn and the saturn uranus pluto which is the plutocracy episode in relation to the great depression the great recession you know etc and then we bring it back in in the last episode related to what's going on now and where things are heading but it was frustrating because we simply couldn't go into the kind of nuance or complexity you know for example i give you one example but in the technology episode um you know the 60s of course was completely transformational and it climaxes in 1968 and 69 with the famous stanford demonstration of personal computers and the mouse and on and on and hypertext linking and instantaneous messaging and then 1969 of course is the first demonstration of the internet right well that happened to be the jupiter conjunction right then in 1969 right. and i that's on the cutting room floor I wanted that in there so badly, I gotta right. tell you. And Max and I thrashed over that and we just really, it's just gonna blow people out. It's gonna be too much information. And so it was very frustrating not to be able to get into more of the Saturn Pluto, as you mentioned in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and at the end, we would have liked to go a bit more into what was coming or because this year, of course, is the Saturn Uranus, which in itself is a story. But that is after the close of the transit. So we that that there were also legal reasons we have to do that because of the fair use guidelines, and we had to stay within our time periods and couldn't, you know, stray from that. But yeah, and of course we don't bring in Neptune, which I you know was sad about. There were places that Neptune absolutely should have been in there as well. So it, it was a really tough call. But I think it would have been TMI, just too much information, and people couldn't have coped with it. Yeah, I think that makes sense, and and especially if people go into it understanding it's meant to be an introduction to uh, sort of mundane astrology and to the, just the concept of astrology and demonstrating the concept of world astrology and world transits manifesting at different turning points in human history. And if you go into it with that understanding that that's your target audience rather than just you know throwing super high level astrology at people you're trying to make astrology um, at its more a little bit more accessible even though what you're doing is still a, a certain higher type of astrology and looking at historical world transits yeah and i think you know so much of what people associate with astrology at least in the general public is horoscopes and sun signs and stuff much of which is really trivialized and you know just not serious stuff and you know, I think the kind of astrology that Rick does, the kind of work that you do, this is really the highest octave of astrology, and very few people really understand um, the, the the kind of um, thoughtfulness, validity of it. Um, you know, so just giving people a basic kind of one hundred and one in this highest form. I mean, it's a wonderful way, in my mind, for astrology to come more widely to the general public because it's sophisticated, it's grounded. It's deeply married to transpersonal psychology, you know, as Rick points out, you know, which really happened in the 60s. Um, I mean, there's been so much deep research that's gone on, Project Hindsight, the work of Robert Hand, and so many others. I mean, there's a lot more sophistication to this than most people realize. And, you know, in the first episode, we have that short segment on what is astrology. 
and just trying to let people know that this is a very noble tradition, <laughs> you know, and it's been kind of um, smeared and trivialized and, you know, um, stereotyped in that way. So we hope to sort of sidestep that. And, you know, it was helpful, I think, also to um, avoid some of the Zodiac um, questions entirely just to sidestep that and focus on the relationships of the planets because it it gets us away from certain controversies or you know whole other discussions that that can just get in the way um i think for you know i mean i i know people who i knew would be entirely dismissive of the astrology who are very brilliant very thoughtful very rigorous thinkers yeah that, that's a good point about the zodiac though cuz that's um, in turn, in Cosmos and Psyche, in Turnus's approach to historical astrology, he focuses primarily on outer planet hard aspect alignments of of conjunctions and squares and oppositions, and and doesn't emphasize the zodiac much. And the zodiac doesn't play a major role in his approach to historical astrology. So in in this film, you do address that really quickly early on, and um, not sidestep, but sort of just say we're going to focus here on. Outer planet alignments and demonstrate uh, that working in historical events, and just that in and of itself, that basic premise will be extremely new to most non-astrologers. The idea that there's more than just the zodiac to astrology, or more than just your sun sign, but the idea that other planets in our solar system could have some sort of astrological correlations is really the main thing that the series sets out to demonstrate and, and does demonstrate successfully. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, you know, to me, there are several points that are really super important about the astrology. Um, one of them is that astrology has been, you know, overwhelmingly person centered. And this, you know, basically changes the pronoun from me, me, me to we when you get into world transits. We're all in the soup together, right? And that fundamental shift of our pronoun societally is core to whether we're going to make it through this keyhole. You know, unless we begin to see ourselves as we and not me, you know, the hyper individualism is part of what is killing the world right now. So that alone is a really significant shift in understanding our, you know, that we're all in it together, basically. And then I think the multivalence is critically important. Um, and that was one of the things that um, really turned me on to doing this project because I was watching a lot of films at the time because I wanted to make another film. And I just kept running up against this binary of good guys and bad guys. And, you know, whichever side it is, it doesn't really matter in one way. It's two sides of the same coin. And the point is, it's much more complex than that. It's light and shadow and everything in between. And every moment of every day, any one of us has the choice for how we express those energies, right? We have real agency about that. And the more, as Rick points out, the more aware we are of these forces, this kind of archetypal weather report, the more freedom we have in how we choose to respond and to recognize at any minute we can be an angel or a demon, you know? Um, it's all there all the time. So I think getting into that complexity and that, that sense of agency is really important. And then I think, you know, lastly, that um, if, if, if this is really true, that, you know, these world transits correspond with these archetypal, um, you know, weather reports, then we're part of something so much larger. I mean, it is so humbling, you know, <laughs> to realize, my goodness, we don't know much at all, you know, and that's the first step to wisdom right there. Um, and so hopefully, I mean, that's been our hope certainly with the film um, is that that 
you know, that paradigm shift, changing consciousness. And, you know, in the um, Liberating the Instincts episode, Stan Groff is in that. And he talks about how his research with psychedelics found that psychedelics have a self-healing potential because when you change your consciousness, you change your health and your well-being, quite literally. Um, and so we could change our psychological health quite dramatically with this change in consciousness. Yeah, I liked uh, the the interview, the discussion between uh, Stanislav Grof and Richard Harness in one of the later episodes. I think in episode eight or eight or nine, where they talked about how they met, and uh, Grof was doing research into psychedelics at the time. And one of the things that they found was it was only through astrology, or astrology became one of the most reliable tools for determining if a person was going to have. A more positive or constructive or a more challenging response to um, having a psychedelic event or going through psychedelic therapy, that the astrology for some reason was the main thing they kept coming back to in terms of being able to actually determine ahead of time, like how a person might respond to certain therapies like that. Yeah, no, it's so interesting in episode one. And, you know, we learned so much on this project. I didn't know most of this stuff, but um, yeah, Rick had been at Harvard. And um, wanted to come to Esalen to study with Stan Groff because he was really interested in psychedelic therapeutic work. And so they were, Rick moved to Esalen. And um, what they were finding was that with all these psychedelic sessions, it, it was impossible using the conventional psych, um, psychiatric tests to understand why one person would have a good trip or a bad trip, or why one person would have a good trip or a bad trip at different times. And someone in one of the workshops said to Stan that he found that um, transit astrology was very helpful in understanding that type of um, context of why that might happen. And um, they were very skeptical, Stan and Rick, at first, but they were aware of Carl Jung's deep interest in astrology and decided to look into it. You know, science is the impartial evaluation of evidence. You know, you just look at the data, and they found that. Um, astrology turned out to be the only meth predictive method that would work in understanding what conditions might cause a person to have one or another experience. Right. And and so that led to, though, eventually Tarnas's statement that he he repeats, which is that astrology is um, archetypally predictive, that it's not necessarily concretely predictive, but instead that you can predict the broad outlines or the archetype of Certain alignments when they happen in the future, in terms of world events, or in some instances when you're looking at personal transits, the type of um, experience that a person might go through in broad terms. But that that was a re important sort of foundation or basis in approaching this series is just the notion that it was archetypally predictive, but not necessarily concretely predictive. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think it's really interesting because. I can imagine in the next several years that when you go go to a party, which hopefully we'll be able to do again someday, um, that everybody's going to be talking about their transits. You know, I mean, I think transit astrology is about to really break in a big way uh, culturally. And I, I mean, I, I can certainly say in my own life, I find it incredibly useful. You know, both personally for myself, but to understand kind of the world context that I'm walking into at a given time. And um, you know, as Rick says in the film, it's a great navigational tool. You know, if you're going to go out, you want to sailing or surfing, you want to know which wind, which way the winds are blowing, and how strong they are, or whether to just stay home <laughs> that day. You know, so. Um, but I think transit astrology is going to be 
hopefully it'll be a, a big thing. I think it's a very useful tool. Yeah, I mean, I think we're starting to see some of that. I mean, of course, you know, the terms like mercury retrograde have come into common usage, and uh, other terms like you know Saturn return, which is a type of Saturn uh, transit astrology, is also becoming common. Um, so I think we're we're starting to get there, but we'll see how the next few years goes. Um, one of the questions I wanted to make sure we got to before things wrap up is. I'm sure, like for some people, there might be some trepidation or some criticism about the somewhat sort of overtly political nature of the series or or lens of the series through which things are being looked through, and some people might even reject it out of hand as a result of that. Um, but I guess some of the questions are things like, on the other hand, can astrology operate in a vacuum, or is the analysis of history or current events? Ever free of some sort of cultural bias in some way, and is that not somehow integral to astrology? The sort of subjective perspective of the observer in terms of interpreting either world events or personal events. How did you approach it, or what was your philosophy when it came to this project? Yeah, no, that's a really valid and important question, and you know, obviously, um, the film to some degree reflects my point of view. And one of the reasons I chose the Uranus Pluto is that it is precisely about these times. It, the, it's about liberation, you know, on on the positive side of it, and uh, the the idea of looking at this quest for freedom, for human rights, for rights for nature, um, and for justice. Th that's my passion, and that's very much you know the focus of what the film is about. In that sense, people may disagree with various of the politics, but. Given that it was a Uranus Pluto film, that is, you know, that's what that transit is very much about: revolutions, both left and right, and you know, as I say, count revolution and kind of revolution. I don't think there's anything intrinsic to astrology about about the politics in that way, other than the archetypal aspect of the quest for freedom, you know, or liberation in that sense. Um, I think. Uh, there are many cultural approaches to this, and you know I have great respect for diversity at large <laughs> as a first principle, and people having different viewpoints about these things. So I'm not, you know, I, I think you'll probably agree the film overall is not prescriptive or doesn't tell anybody what to do. We certainly show different models, but it, it's not direct any, anyone. Um, and uh, I think being apolitical is political. You know, inaction is action. And we're at a moment that is a very political moment in the world. There's no escaping that. And you can't hide out from it. I mean, you can, but that's not going to work. Um, all this is going to move forward one way or the other. So I think uh, people can find whatever their pathway is into the values behind these um, political movements and create those for yourself, you know, in, in the way that you envision. And um, that's what we need. But what we really need is for people to engage. One way or the other, we cannot be bystanders right now. So I don't expect everybody to agree with the politics per se, but I would in encourage people to engage in whatever way um, you know is most appropriate for them. And you know, I, one one thing that I found so interesting, um, I, I I read a bunch of stuff about queer astrology and some absolutely beautiful, beautiful statements. One by Channing Nicholas and one by um, queerastrology.com, I think. But it talks about how you know so many people. There's a whole section in the film about the return of the repressed, and there's a, a section on gay rights movements as well. And so many people who have been rejected, marginalized, 
you know, uh, canceled, denied. Um, and astrology is really beautiful in that way because it doesn't pay attention to any of that. It pays attention to what your character is, what your psyche is, what your soul is, who you are as a human being, and gets past all this other nonsense, you know? And so I think that's part of the beauty of this is that it is an open-ended archetypal um, well for people to return to, to restore your own identity, you know, and, and your own character in that way and, and opt out of all this nonsense that's being laid on us culturally. I mean, you know, so much of this in the film definitely, you know, looks deeply at capitalism, which unfortunately is driving so much of what goes on, including divide and conquer. And, you know, that that's so central to the model. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, that that's one of the complexities of it. Um, I mean, it's been interesting the last few years, but uh, initially, you know, Starbucks and then Amazon have started using astrology extensively in their marketing. HBO Max now uses it. You can go and enter your birthday and they'll give you all the Leo films to watch or this kind of thing. And I mean, what's terrifying about what we're talking about here, Chris, is that when you look at AI, if these people actually understood the power of astrology, it's the ultimate AI. I mean, it's really terrifying right. the degree of psychological manipulation, behavior modification. Oh my God. You know, you as an astrologer know how much you can know about a person in looking at their chart. And so that, that's something that <laughs> it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And, um, you know, we need to contend with that as well. Yeah, there were, we did an episode on artificial intelligence actually just earlier this month with uh, Kent Bai, who does a podcast on that. That's one area I was actually curious about as a, as a spinoff that you didn't address in yours because you focused instead on the almost the opposite, which is how biology and, and biological beings have consciousness, and that really ended up being the final culmination of the film was was the inherent consciousness in the cosmos. Um, but that would be an interesting question, you know, to be answered at some point in the next century, which is if the creation of some sort of artificial consciousness is possible or or happens at some point, and whether astrology could be a model for that if it indeed is already a model for consciousness. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty skeptical at that level. AI, I call it artificial idiocy. I mean, these systems, you know, they're inanimate at the end of the day. They're not alive. They're not conscious. They're machines. That's what they are, and that's all it's ever going to be. So, I and and so much of it is harnessed to capitalism to selling garbage to idiots. I mean, that's pretty much what it comes down to, which is literally devouring the planet. So that's got to be deconstructed, you know, at large. What's interesting to me, you know, is um, there are some things I'd like to see happen. Um, one of them is I wish someone would create an astrology foundation that would be basically astrology for social and environmental benefit, right? How could astrology best serve society, right, and and the natural world? And I, I saw a really interesting thing, I don't remember the guy's name, but a parliamentarian in the UK a few years ago who was proposing that astrology should be adopted by the National Health Service in Britain for uh, mental health support. You know, what a brilliant idea. I mean, of course it should be. You know, this should be part of counseling, part of psychology, part of social support. There are endless ways that is so I would challenge the astrology community here to th 
come up with ways that this could actually spread in positive ways? How could this really serve, you know, other than just selling stuff <laughs> or manipulating people? Um, another thing that we would like to do, it's been a funding issue, but with the series, because you mentioned how um, how much information is in there and how many big ideas, we'd love to create study guides and discussion guides and resources for people. So episode by episode, you could go deeper and you can, you know, I think people are going to want to form pods or working groups or study groups or discussion groups to really go deep into this stuff and learn more and figure out where you can engage, you know, how can you be more involved where you'd like to be? You know, hopefully that kind of stuff will flow out of this, but there's so much good that, in my opinion, that could come to society from astrology that we should really be challenging ourselves to see how envision that and then make it happen. Right. So that's really that's one of your core things in terms of it seems like astrology in terms of perspectives. I mean, it's interesting I, the, then that I've accidentally uh, on the podcast in the past month then contrasted two wildly different views in terms of consciousness and biology versus artificial consciousness and those being two diametrically evidently diametrically opposing views but one of your core things is that astrology itself should be used in order to enact political change and that's part of your sort of perspective on on how you think astrology can best be used in a constructive fashion well i wouldn't say so much political but astrology for the public good you know Mm -hmm. I mean, look at the type of work you do, and the astrologers I know—they're—they're they're so um, committed to service, whether it be with an individual client or in doing broader work of writing and teaching, and you know, um, trying to really help people understand themselves and understand these climates that we're all operating in at different times and cycles, and you know, all of that and evolution itself in that way. And so I just think there's so many ways to, that it, I mean I know how it's been important in my life and how I've used it and I think that we should you know the next step here is it's you know oh I should mention also um, William Keepen who is in the film who's the mathematical physicist who talks about um, different hypotheses for how astrology could work and he talks particularly about the work of David Bohm um, and the idea of holo movement that we live in a unified integrated cosmos of, of endless interconnection and you know anyway um i asked will if he would be willing to pull together uh, an article about whatever contemporary science does exist about astrology because particularly the last 10 20 years there have been more studies coming out they're generally small you know but it's not at a scale that you know we would like to see but over and over, these studies are affirming different uh, pieces of astrology. For example, aspects and houses are being affirmed by actual studies. Um, so Will is going to be writing, he's writing an article that we hope to publish by the launch. Um, I, I don't hold me to that, but that that's in the, the can. And I'm personally not, I, I'm more interested in how astrology can be applied in good ways. Um, than improving it scientifically per se. But there's going to be more and more research in this area. These things are empirical. I mean, here we are holding a mirror up to the transit and look what happened. I mean, it, it's a direct correspondence. The, the It was archetypally predictive what happened here. I mean, that is measurable on some level. And so are some of these other things. There, there's a really, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the um, the late biologist Lyle Watson, but he was a visionary biologist who sort of dared go where others didn't and looking at um, pretty far out phenomena. But he wrote a book called Supernature, 
that has a wonderful chapter on astrology. And some of the earliest research, or some of the most interesting research, I should say, was in the, I think the mid-40s, RCA Corporation was having trouble with their satellite dishes, right? And their, their, their radio reception. And they started to look at planets, and what they found was the axial alignment screwed up their reception. And when there were trines, it improved their reception, right? I mean, that's measurable, right? When you look at the planetary aspects, we, we could measure that, you know? Um, so I think that that's going to be a whole other field that will open up much more research into the science of astrology. And, you know, in my opinion, it's largely an art, and so much of it is psychological and interior and subjective in certain ways. So I, I don't think it'll ever be a science in that way, but I think that we can verify and validate certain pieces of things like planetary movements or aspects or things of that nature. Yeah, well, and one of the interesting potential promises of your film is hopefully that it will help to spark more interest in terms of high level, higher level discussions and research into astrology in the same way that Tarnas has done with Cosmos and Psyche, just because it, it seems like in studying the history of astrology that at different points, sometimes there's there's an astrologer or there's a few astrologers that end up getting together and uh, incorporating all of the current scientific understanding of what's known about nature and philosophy and and science and all of the, these different things and creating a grand unified system that integrates astrology, but that hasn't really been done yet in our time, and we're still sort of waiting for that to happen. But by the end of your series, it seems like it pulls together a bunch of different pieces that gives a possible glimpse into something like that that uh, of creating a grand unified system that could be appropriate for our times and um, articulating where astrology would fall in that. Yeah, I mean, I'm a little skeptical generally of grand unified systems because you know, again, humility is our constant companion. How little we really know and understand. So I think these things are frameworks that can be incredibly helpful, and you know, we can understand at least parts of things. You know, but um, but I think that there's so much opportunity here and. You know, I, I did a lot of research um, along the way about just um, kind of markets and audiences and a lot of demographic data and stuff like that. And this was as of two, three years ago, but people under 45 have no baggage about astrology, basically. It's a big so what, of course, why not, you know? And so many younger people are, are into it. And that's a big generational shift that I think is going to more and more take over, frankly. Where this will be something that'll just be much more common, and you know, people like yourself are in such a wonderful position to really educate people with really thoughtful, intelligent, and very experienced, you know, astrology. I mean, you've been around the block, um, and there's so much nuance to it, and so much yet to learn. Where you know, I mean, I, everybody's always learning. You know, there's so much to know, but I think it's going to hopefully the film will help elevate the conversation and stimulate more and more people to really take this seriously. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. One of the last things is just if if anyone was like skeptical about astrology and they're not sure, I mean, is that one of your primary audiences with this series? Do you think somebody, if somebody's skeptical about astrology, you know, what would you say to them, or or what would you say to encourage them in terms of of looking into it, or or is that really the purpose of this series to open it up to a broader audience and and sort of make the case for astrology in some way? And maybe in a way that's unique that hasn't been done before in this format. It's a great question, and you know, Rick um, in his teaching always tells his students to hold the pole of doubt, 
don't believe what he's saying, check it out for yourself. And in the film, we really don't hit people over the head or try to convince anybody of anything or argue anything or prove anything, which is not provable, actually. It's a breadcrumb trail of correlations across centuries in the public sphere. It's not about an individual or that person's psyche. It's about being in the soup together, the cosmic soup that you know, these um, archetypal waves kind of break and recede across history. Um, so my attitude is you figure it out. <laughs> you know, this is the breadcrumb trail that we followed. It's pretty compelling. The data seem pretty compelling. It's very nuanced. I mean, we couldn't get into all the nuance. These things don't happen only during Uranus-Pluto periods, but there is an intensity, a ubiquity, a frequency, you know, et cetera, and, and a distinct kind of a cultural zeitgeist or a vibe. Um, but no, we're not trying to convince anybody of anything. And um, really, to me, the astrology is is the sort of portal into this much larger mystery of consciousness itself and being part of this thing that is so much larger than we can even really conceive of. And I think that that's really what I hoped for. But I would encourage people to be highly skeptical and um, draw their own conclusions, do their own research, you know. And, and at the end of the day, I think a lot of it for most people will be intuitive. You know, honestly, we're all being marketed to all the time and people are trying to sell us BS, belief systems, you know, all day long, right? I don't do that. I'm not into it at all. So my attitude is, hey, here, here's a really interesting scenario. See what you think, you know? Um, you figure it out. Yeah, I like that. That makes sense. Um, all right. Brilliant. Well, thanks a lot for joining me today. So the next step, I guess, it, it, obviously, if people like the series once they've watched it, I'm sure Cosmos and Psyche and reading that, since that's was much of your source material, would be your main recommendation in terms of where they should go from from here. Yeah, absolutely. And um, we'll have more stuff on you know our website and other stuff like that. But yeah, I hope people think you can go to either changingofthegods.com or changingofthegodsseries.com. And you can opt in now and pre-register starting uh, September or February 7th, and then we'll have the two-week limited run. I mean, so if you want to see it, that's the window, those two weeks. Um, that's it. Um, and it'll be gone for a while. So I hope people will check in. And Chris, I really want to compliment you. This was a very stimulating conversation, and you do really beautiful work in the world. And it, this is so intelligent, and I really appreciate um, the conversation. Thanks. Yeah. Well, thanks for the the work that you've put into this series and the, and the I, I can just imagine like the blood, sweat, and tears that have gone into it. I can see it in terms of the final product, but I think I think it was worth it, and I think people are really going to like the series, both astrologer and non-astrologer alike. So so congratulations on finishing it, and I look forward to to seeing how it's received both inside and outside of the astrological community, and then you know what you go on to do in the future after this. I think maybe. Take a vacation or something. So I'm sure this has been a long six year or seven year stint, but I think you've deserved a, a break for a little while. I am so down with that. <laughs> I cannot tell you. I'm going to take a little time off later this year, I hope so. But we're really excited. And again, I just want to thank my team so much Max and Theo, Max DeArm and Theo Badashi, Nina Simons, Lori Benenson, of course, um, and Bill Benenson, her husband as well. And of course, Rick, who has just been invaluable, and all the people in the film. and. As I say, I mean, I could go on and on naming all the people who have been part of this. It's a, so I think you know part of the beauty of it is that it really is a passion project, and it's been a people. Everybody that's worked on it has had a direct personal connection, 
and really cared about it. I mean, so I think there's a sense of devotion, you know, behind it. And it's been a monster to make it. And I, I'm so happy that we're almost done. And that's wonderful. But now it, we release it into the wild and it's going to be a great adventure. So um, I look forward. Maybe we'll follow up in the future, Chris. Definitely. That sounds good. All right. Well, uh, thanks a lot for for joining me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Great good luck with your with your show. Thanks. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. So thanks everyone for watching the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, and Kristen Otero. If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you would like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2,000 years ago. And in this book, I outline uh, basic concepts, but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course, which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. Also, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, and the Astrogold Astrology app, which is available for both iPhone and Android at astrogold.io. There are also two major astrology conferences happening this year. The first is the Northwest Astrological Conference, happening May 26th through the 30th, 2022, near Seattle, Washington. Find out more information at norwac.net. And the second is the International Society for Astrological Research Conference, which is taking place August 25th through the 29th, 2022, in Westminster, Colorado. And you can find out more information about that at isar2022.org.